When a lot of people think of the erotic and romantic future of humanity, they think of sex robots. Sex robots have been portrayed in science fiction for generations now, and they're typically portrayed as servile, young, thin, white women who work to fulfill heterosexual men's romantic and erotic desires. And sure, there is nothing currently on the market that rises quite to the level of, say, the Stepford Wives. At least not yet. But there are already plenty of examples of humanoid, feminized sex tech marketed to heterosexual men. And their design, development, and marketing definitely warrants further investigation. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Gender, Sex, and Tech, continuing the conversation. I'm your host, Jennifer Jill Fellows, and today I've invited Chloe Locatelli to the show to talk about her research on sex robots, humanoid sex tech, and post-humanism. Chloe Locatelli is a PhD candidate in the Digital Humanities Department at King's College London. She is also a contributor to thefutureofsex.net a web publication that looks at how communication, interface, biological, and other technologies are enabling new expressions of human sexuality, and what the individual and social responses to these technological shifts are. Chloe's research interests are in sex tech, sex robots, affinity with digital characters and other places where sex, intimacy, and digital technologies meet. Chloe, welcome to the show. Hi, Jill. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to speaking to you today. Before we begin, I'm going to pause for a moment to recognize that digital space is physical space. The internet is built and sustained with physical infrastructure, and the servers and cables that connect us today occupy physical space. In addition, now Skynet hovers above us, changing the phenomenological experience of physical space. Digital space is then created through resource extraction and maintained through energy consumption. And so I want to recognize that Gender, Sex, and Tech, Continuing the Conversation, is recorded today on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people of the Kakite Nation. So before we kind of get into talking about your research specifically, Chloe, I want to start with a bit of background and invite you to tell us a little about your academic journey. So let's start for people who don't know. Can you tell us a bit about what digital humanities is? Absolutely. Um, So I think that with digital humanities, there are lots of various definitions. As a discipline, we haven't all fully agreed what it might mean. But I think in my mind, early digital humanities began as a discipline to encompass the digitalization of archiving, documentation and cataloging. 
and has now evolved to include all kinds of research that ultimately seriously accounts for the digital in relation to humanities topics, as the name might suggest. I think it's a really great place to be in terms of its timeliness and its interdisciplinarity. It really allows you to pull all sorts of threads that are really needed when attending to contemporary topics and digital technologies permeating them, like current sex tech developments, which is what I look at. (laughs) I think that's really cool. And I I love the interdisciplinary idea. So obviously, I, I was trained as a philosopher, but I worked for quite a while in interdisciplinary spaces. And I just find it's really, really rich. And I can totally see how adding a digital angle here would be quite topical for sure right now. <laughs> so how did how did you come to, to study digital humanities? How did you become interested in this? So I think like a lot of people who arrive at the digital humanities, they didn't really know that they were going to end up here. At least that's been my experience and many other people's. I started my initial investigations for what would be my thesis at my master's university was at the University of Granada in Spain. And I was living in Spain for about four or five years and heavily involved in sex worker activism spaces. And what my initial research was going to be was on sex workers' use of digital technologies in Spain that has a very precarious and illegal approach to sex work. So really wanted to see the intersections of tech in their existences as sex workers online and offline. But I really distinctly remember coming across a think piece about the development of sex robots, and I'm using inverted commas <laughs> with this um, idea yeah, we'll of dig sex into that robot, more. which at the time and kind of still is not much more than an animatronic doll, but there were so many feminist conversations and debates about them. And so that's when I really started looking at sex tech, which is a term that I use for digitally augmented sex toys, and specifically using looking at sex tech that was designed for heterosexual men. And so When I really got into my research, I started to realise that there were lots of features of sex work and post-industrial sexual commerce that were equally applicable to the digital sex tech products that were coming out. So sex work literature, to give like a very brief overview, kind of has some key points that I think are really important when we think about sex tech developments that hopefully will come apparent as this podcast continues, such as Sex, sex work is overwhelmingly heterosexual men seeking out women for sexual services. Point number two is that in sexual commerce, heterosexual men often seek out emotional interaction through erotic paid-for services. And this is not unusual and in fact well documented. And increasingly, sexual commerce services and spaces collide with leisure and play. So it's really important to note that I'm not equating sex work to sex tech because that would completely elide the complexity of sex workers labor but I am suggesting that sex tech design developments and advertising for heterosexual men resonates with sex work for them which I explore in my thesis and conceptualize as post-human sexual commerce so that's kind of how I arrived here. Okay that's really interesting so you started out doing research specifically looking at sex workers in Spain and looking at uses of technology by sex workers or just kind of in the sex work industry? So it was, the the intention was, because I was so invested in and spending so much time with sex workers in activist spaces, it was to kind of explore to what extent digital technologies could make 
for a tool of empowerment and mm. also make sex workers vulnerable in different contexts. And that was working with Aristea Fotopoulou's idea that digital technologies can be for empowerment, but also for vulnerability mm-hmm. uh, or give experiences of vulnerability, which we know to be true with experiences of doxing, financial precarity, with lots of different sex work experiences. So that was the idea to look at it in, in the context of Spain. And then yeah, when I started looking at sex robots, the way that they were, ad- sex robots, again, in inverted commas, the way they were advertised and presented as able to satisfy specific things that sex workers were being asked to do right. as well. That was the parallel. And that's what I want to be very clear right. on. I would not equate a sex robot to a sex worker. Right, right. But the the design and the advertising echoes a lot of things that we see in sex work for heterosexual men. So that was the trade. So the design... The design and the advertising of the quote unquote sex robots yes. echoes some of the other things that you were seeing specifically in terms of heterosexual men's approach, perhaps, or needs or wants, and in terms of things like mixing eroticism with romanticism, I heard, leisure and play. And and there was a third element that I've already forgotten. I'm so sorry. That it is overwhelming. No, no, that it is overwhelmingly men seeking out female sexual service that this is overwhelmingly heterosexually framed yes correct yeah okay that's really interesting and I think that's why to answer why I was interested in sex tech is I think that there's a gap in the conversation when it comes to sex tech for heterosexual men and there's lots of interesting work being done on sex tech and its aptitude for sexual empowerment, um, sex beyond heteronormative limitations, and then slightly more negative or concerning aspects in terms of accessibility, privacy concerns. But there's very little work on sex tech for heterosexual men in terms of the demographic and the femininities inscribed within those technologies. And I think that this is why my research has gone in this direction. So let's talk a little bit about your research. You have this wonderful paper that I read that inspired me to contact you, and it's called Rethinking Sex Robots. I will try and put a link to it in the show notes, though it's probably, I think it's behind a paywall. (laughs) That's okay. I can still put a link to the journal where it is. You start the paper by pointing out that a lot of academic literature focuses on sex robots, but sex robot technology is really new. And I believe it's only been available for purchase at the time of this recording for about six months to a year or something like that. So can you talk a little bit about what a sex robot is and where we are right now in terms of this technology? Well, firstly, thank you so much for enjoying my paper. That makes me feel really good. (laughs) It was awesome. (laughs) Thank you. But I I think that asking what is a sex robot is the most important question if we want to really get started on this topic. Because in that paper, I talk about the definitions of a sex robot that is applicable beyond the sci-fi imaginaries that we have of them. If we say sex robot, I think, and other research has shown that most people imagine a human-like construction that's ostensibly gendered female, white, thin, but also a material, tangible object. And so I would say that the closest thing to a sex robot that currently exists is a silicone doll with an AI head from Real Doll X which I will come back to later. But this pretty much does encapsulate the sci-fi vision of a sex robot, I would say. 
But in that paper, I kind of unpicked the definition of what a sex robot is. And uh, I use Danaher's definition about a sex robot. And I'm really paraphrasing here. But a sex robot could be defined as an artificial entity used for sex that meets three conditions, which is a humanoid form. It has human-like movement and behavior and some degree of artificial intelligence. And kind of what I point out in my paper is that there are lots of other technologies that might not look like sci-fi imagined sex robots, but that also meet this criteria, like a sexy avatar chatbot or a computer generated VR character. So if we expand our perception of sex robots, we can start to see commonalities between, and I really have to stress this, existing forms of sex tech, not hypothetical future developments or sci-fi imaginaries. Right. So we have this kind of sci-fi image, and I think you're right, of of what a sex robot is. And I do totally think of like a humanoid robot that's like got some animatronics and can kind of move around a little bit. And yes, I think the sci-fi representation is typically female, typically white, typically thin. But what I really liked in this paper is, yeah, you you challenge that idea that, yes, something kind of approaching this sci-fi imagining does now exist on the market. It's not quite the sci-fi imagining, but it's approaching that. But if we think about kind of a broad definition of what a sex robot is, there are already sex toys and, and companion assistant girlfriend type things that already exist that can be purchased, right? And so I think that's really, really interesting. And and the gendering, I think, is really interesting, too, that if we're talking about something that's humanoid, especially in, in North America, and I would imagine in Europe, although you can let me know, there's a sense that if it's humanoid, it has to be gendered. <laughs> Does that seem fair? That seems more than fair. The current chapter that I'm writing and working on now is can we imagine a human-like construction of something without gendering it? Or is creating a human-like technology contingent on presenting it as gendered? And the jury's kind of out, but I would say that if it's embodied, I would argue that inevitably a human-like representation relies on an impression of gender, an idea of gender being evoked by either the body, the behavior, and human beings do that all the time with all different kinds of technologies. It doesn't have to, there doesn't even need to be a body for us to gender things. They don't even have to be human-like. Yes. So when we see something like that has very, very minor cues that we might start to gender them. I think this happened with the Pepper domestic robot, which I, I can't remember when it was launched, but it's it tried to present itself as a gender neutral robot. And there are arguments online about whether it's male or female, even though no one's tried to no one's tried to give it a gender. We've tried <laughs> they've tried desperately not to for that precise reason. So I would say that yeah, when there's a body, immediately human beings want to categorize this. And we know that that's true beyond technological representations of bodies. So it's just an unfortunate way we see the world. Right. And also just with your discussion there, it's not just that it has to be gendered, but if the discussions online are, is it male or is it female, that's kind of upholding a gender binary as well here. And I do see that a lot. Like I've seen in my own research that Siri, for example, kind of rolled out a gender neutral voice recently, but people and the marketing of Siri is still very much that Siri is female, like they use she, her pronouns and and all that kind of stuff when talking about Siri and the feminine style voice is the one that's most used in marketing. And as far as we know, the one that most people still pick. 
So I think that's really interesting too. It's not just gendered, but that there's a, a strong upholding of the gender binary and a lot of the marketing and design of not not just sex tech, but a lot of tech that we're meant to interact with in kind of a humanoid-ish way. Absolutely. I think this is one of the main things with my research is that nothing I'm looking at is particularly new in terms of tech conversations. You know, the idea of gendered technologies, there's been like so much rich work done, especially on voice assistants, domestic assistants, like VPAs, all of this stuff has got like a long but well, as long as it's existed kind of investigation that's ha- that's happening in terms of the gender speak if we're speaking about the gender aspects but there isn't that for sex tech yet and so I think that's where it's there's a, a very vitriolic and very like passionate response to a gendered female representation of a sex robot because it's visually and ostensibly gendered female but beyond that I think there's much more to unpick about the gendering of these technologies genders go beyond the body we know that to be true so Mm -hmm. so why can't we have these conversations about sex tech they should be there too which is what i'm trying to do so what you've also found it sounds like is not just that they're gendered and typically gendered female but we can also kind of bring back in terms of not just the gender binary but also kind of the heteronormativity here as well that a lot of them are marketed in ways that seem to be marketed specifically to heterosexual men. So while we don't really have robust sex robots in a kind of a sci-fi way yet, the, the point that you have made is that we already kind of have some things on the market that fit a broader definition of what a sex robot is. And specifically in the paper I read, there were three of them that you looked at. There was Azuma Hikari, Real Daleks, who you've already mentioned, and Virtual Mates, Sheila. And I want to talk about all three. <laughs> but before we do that, can I, I want to get a little bit of theory in. So we've already talked about the gender binary and heteronormativity. But in analyzing these specific three examples, you also reached for the concept of post-humanism. So for listeners who might be unfamiliar, can you tell us a little bit about what post-humanism is? I can absolutely try <laughs> and give a, a soundbite. And of course, this is only a little bit. People need to go do research if they want to know more. Absolutely. Yeah, this won't be a comprehensive overview of post-humanism, but I will try my best. I would say that post-humanism, as the prefix suggests, is a theory and praxis that aims to move past a human-centric vision of the world and a humanist, with a capital H, vision of the world. And I would say that it has two branches, and they they work together, but they are somewhat different. And the first branch, I would say, critically interrogates the concept of human. Who has and who hasn't been considered human in specific times and contexts and for what reasons? So this intersects really heavily with feminist, queer, post and decolonial theory, as well as intersecting with race theory. It's it's interrogating what makes a human a human. Mm -hmm. With the second branch, I would say it explores the viability of conceptualising the world through human slash non-human relationships. If we were to dissenter the human and acknowledge the significance of non-human actors in our world, how would we view our social realities and histories? And this is where we see post-humanism being applied more with ecology, technology, critical animal studies, actor network theory. And I think that this is how most people who have perhaps heard of post-humanism understand the term, especially in relation to Haraway's really formative work with her eponymous 
cyborg of her cyborg manifesto and really importantly for my work her conceptualization of companion species and of making kin that would be my my kind of summary for post of posthumanism for this <laughs> nice yeah i was thinking of haraway while you were talking about it and and the stuff on companion species where she says in some sense we have never been human like in a humanist sense right we've always been interacting with other species being shaped by other species and and in these relationships and how do i mean i'm i'm not paraphrasing at all here i'm just <laughs> remembering my impression from reading her is just this kind of idea that there is an arrogance to the idea that you can't really understand or even approach understanding what the world might be like for like your house cat or or whatever that we know we interact with these species all the time and we can form empathy and we can learn to approximate their worldviews and things like that and and so yeah i was thinking of that when you were talking about this and then how she kind of takes that and looks at cyborgs and the way in which humans have never been really, our, our bodies haven't been naturally occurring freely un, untouched by technology, that we are always already interacting with technology and shaped by technology as well. So you, the whole category of human becomes quite messy, right? Absolutely. But it's one that I think we become increasingly attached to in a in mm. with with so much digital technology permeating our everyday lives. And especially with it comes up in sex robot conversations quite frequently. There's this kind of prizing of the concept of human, which is why it's important to mention that post-humanism goes against the humanist with a capital H, because I think that if we want to seriously consider ways that we can creatively imagine a better world, then we have to stop thinking that human beings are at the centre of it. So it is a really important point that we start critically interrogating why we are so attached to this concept of human human likeness as kind of the absolute representation of the top of the hierarchy right and also I feel like as something that's kind of like a discrete entity separate from animals and separate from technology as though we could define our boundaries in some way like that too and I, I saw your work really kind of troubling some, bo both of those assumptions in a way I thought was really interesting. Thank you. I do try to, I'm trying to remember who is it that wrote um, The Sexual Politics of Meat, Carol, Carol J. Adams, I think. But she talks about human animals and non-human animals. And her work in that respect, it's, it's very different. It works on critical animal studies and you know, politics of eating meat. But it, it's this idea of human, humans distancing themselves from animals, humans distancing themselves from living beings. And then when we see digital technologies, I think it's relevant to my work in the sense that we see digital technologies increasingly encroaching, or we feel like it's increasingly encroaching on what it is to be human. And suddenly that really has to be contained and protected at all costs. Although arguably, arguably it historically has always been, but it's still being that. Yeah, I think that the panic about technology encroaching on what it means to be human, like it feels new every time it happens. And this past year, it was like chat GPT in my circles. <laughs> but but it's happened a lot of times before, right, where technology, some some new device or new digital tool can take over things that used to be done by manual laborers or by thinking laborers or what have you. And, and everybody's like, <gasps> Audible gasp. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Ab <laughs> absolutely. No, the chat GPT is a really great example of that. Yeah. It's just the newest in a long line, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, but this time it's coming after the academics, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's why everyone's panicking. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but chat GPT is not what we're here to talk no. about. I have lots of thoughts about it, but it's not why we're here today. <laughs> so... Let's let's talk then about the three case studies that you looked at now that we have this kind of general understanding of posthumanism. So I want to say I was really, really excited to see a paper talking about Hikari, Azuma Hikari specifically. I discovered Hikari, I think, in 2018 when I was researching the gendering of digital assistants like Siri and Alexa. And Hikari kind of popped up in this kind of weird gray area because... Hikari is a digital assistant, but she's not just a digital assistant. She's she's not marketed that way. She's much more. So can you tell us a little bit about what Hikari is? I'd love to. I love talking about Azuma Hikari. She's my fave. But I think that it's really important to elaborate on your point of this gray area with Azuma Hikari because I completely agree. Obviously, my research looks at sex tech and Azuma Hikari is not explicitly a sex tech example, but... I've included her in my research because I think she's she. Here I go. I think I know, I used she as well. <laughs> it's inevitable. Um, but I do think Azuma Ikari is a really helpful counterpoint to consider how feminized characters across different technologies resemble each other and significantly how feminized digital assistants are more similar to sex tech technologies and characters than they are different. And I hope that by talking about Azuma and with my other case studies, we'll start to see the parallels of feminized characters that are kind, attentive, flirtatious, that kind of evoke a sense of presence and companionship that ties in with posthumanism. And especially with Azuma, this idea of through time investment, you can build and sustain a relationship and it emulates this kind of getting to know each other process. So. So I should explain what Azuma is before I get carried away. And Azuma Ikari was launched in 2019 in Japan and is described as a virtual home robot. So she's both a digital voice assistant and an anime hologram. So there is a visual and audio prompt. And as a digital assistant, she deals with the domestic realm. So setting alarms, regulating lights and informing you of the weather forecast. And Azuma works across multiple platforms, so she's able to communicate through the home assistant box, but can move out of the domestic realm through chatting via the smartphone, which means she is constantly accessible and can accompany the user throughout the day. So the visual side is a hologram that presents Azuma as a visojo or a cute girl character, typical of Japanese anime or manga, which is kind of represented through her blue hair youthful appearance, made outfit, and a high-pitched, breathy voice. Uh, and I would say that this kind of visual and audio genders Azuma Ikari as female, but I think it's a stereotypical, stereotypically feminized behavior, which is such as attentiveness, emotional availability, and care that's really consolidated in the advertising that, in my mind, works really, really hard to emphasize her gender. Mm-hmm. So... Just a few examples of how the advertising really stresses this. The English website presents Azuma Ikari as a companion. So we're directly introduced to this as an idea for her use. And the gendered pronouns consolidate a non-human human character that is a she. And it's important to note that in Japanese, there aren't gendered pronouns. So whilst this might be a direct translation, this is a conscious choice in emphasizing the gender in the English, yeah, in the English translation. And so... 
She's described as a companion to her hardworking master in this world. Her cute personality and lovable behaviour help you relax, which kind of exemplifies concerns that other people have raised about feminised characters being servile and infantilised in digital technologies. She's also described as a bride character, which I'm not sure if you've looked at in your research, Jill, but I think it's really interesting in terms of Strangers and Kennedy's recent work that explored the smart wife phenomenon. And they've been looking Mm. at this um, proliferation of feminized digital technologies, providing emotional support along with domestic assistance. And like a wife and a bride is pretty explicit in what kind of relationship you're imagining. It's like extremely romantic. And, you know, this this is again stressed in the advertising. Your relationship will develop over time. And I'm quoting from the website. And the more you talk, the more he carry changes. And it's this idea of promising a more satisfying relationship with time investment. And I really recommend, because I can't go into all of it, but I really recommend watching the promotional video for Azumaikari. Gatebox is the company. And there's an, there's an English version or one with English subtitles that I would strongly encourage people to watch to really... I will link, <laughs> because it's on YouTube, I'll link yes, it in the show notes. Yes, um, to really get a sense of just how how much the idea of a a presence, a feminized presence is kind of evoked in the advertising and the male working character is really, I'm not going to say enamored, that would be putting words, that would be perhaps going too far, but really engaged and really interacting with this character. Yeah, I would recommend watching the video for the full effect. The video really did to me kind of present this very traditional feminine domestic sphere idea too. And the idea that like, the labor or going out into labor seemed not feminine. And then the home and the domestic sphere is a very traditional feminine sphere. So we've already kind of pulled out this idea of feminine servility in the way in which Hikari is presented. So when we think about Azuma Hikari using post-humanism, is there anything more that we can kind of notice about the way in which she is marketed or created or the kind of roles that she fulfills. I think that there is a lot of emphasis in the advertising of Azumaikari on companion and companionship. And that also really resonates with post-human theory. That's kind of an obvious one. Yeah. But I think it also, it really provides clear evidence of the kind of complex entanglements we have between human and non-human actors. I think it's only when you see the visual hologram that that becomes a a really kind of almost really obvious reminder of the kind of relationships that we already have with our technologies that aren't necessarily accompanied by a gendered female prompt. Like I don't I don't have a home assistant, but I have friends who do and the way that they talk to them and they talk about them, it's it's not entirely dissimilar. But I do think that when you introduce a feminized young girl cute girl character it invites a different kind of rapport with that audio and visual prompt so with that I think that we have to interrogate these very specific representations of femininity in terms of the visual prompts and the discourse and the behavior and with Azuma Ikari she is pretty young thin and kind of racially ambiguous she speaks softly and is very high-pitched the, the kind of movements that she that she does is she's very dynamic, but there's lots of behaviours that are feminine in heavily inverted commas. She flutters her eyes, she holds her hands together imploringly behind her back, bashfully looks down and acts really excited to see the user when 
you interact with her. And all these features have a very specific design in mind. So we have to interrogate the how and the why of constructing digital femininities in those specific ways. And like I said, some really good work has been done on digital assistants, voice VPAs and assistive robotics. But I really want to push that all that great research into the realm of sex tech and what are sex tech digital femininities doing and how are they constructed? Yeah. And I think Hikari is a really interesting gray area bridging point. I'm not quite sure how to how to identify it because as you point out in the article, Azuma Hikari is not sex tech, at least in in one sense, that the marketing and presentation of Hikari does talk about things like she's your girlfriend or your wife. But there isn't a lot of emphasis on the eroticized angle so much as it is more kind of on romantic and companionship. And so can you talk a bit about the inclusion of Hikari here? That, like, what do we gain by looking at this kind of ambiguous product? Yeah. product? So I think that a good kind of anecdote for the ambiguity of Azuma Ikari is when, you, when you're watching the video which I, I really hope people will do, but spoiler alert, you know, some of the content that Azuma Ikari, when she's texting the user, I think that's really significant. She doesn't just stay at home. You can take yeah. her with you all day if you want to. But the English subtitles of Azuma's kind of speech in- includes phrases like, please come home early and I miss you. So this is, you know, it's emotional longing But I also think it's not too much of a stretch to say that it's cusping on kind of flirtatious, suggestive content when it's in the high pitched, Mm -hmm. breathy voice. And it's, you know, I I think it could go there and it could be interpreted there. And I think that is, again, a very specific design choice. Right. And I, I think it's when comparing them with digital femininities in my other case studies, you're like, hold on a second, Azuma, wait, there's, there's, there's way too much overlap here. And one of them is meant to be helping you turn on your lights. And the other one's meant to be helping you get your rocks off. So like, right. What is this? Like, what is this like Venn diagram middle bit where they both sit? What does that actually mean? So that's why she's included uh, with yeah the full recognition that she is in sex tech. Right. And she isn't marketed as sex tech, although there are some suggestive and and flirtatious things that happen. Okay, so so let's talk about one of your case studies that is marketed as sex tech. And it's one you've already mentioned. This is uh, Real Doll X. Can you tell us a little bit about what Real Doll X is? Yes, I would love to. So I'm very passionate about the Real Doll X application. And this is a uh, smartphone application that was released in 2019 from Realbotics LLC. So that is the robotics branch of Real Doll, a Californian brand known for their hyper-realistic silicone sex dolls. So the, the robots, the sex robot, again in commas, that I mentioned at the beginning of the, of the podcast, This application works as a standalone application, but also is the program that runs the sex robot. So it's it's an it's not an insignificant piece of sex tech is what I'm trying to get at with this. It is, I would say, arguably, if we're looking at sex tech marketed to heterosexual men, it is the piece of sex tech. Unfortunately, the app in itself doesn't have doesn't have a lot of academic research, but Yeah, I think I should explain a little bit more what it's about and then it will become a bit clearer. But it's marketed as the game of love and friendship, which is 
not insignificant. Um, with it, users can construct, and I quote, a customizable personal companion agent capable of close personal interaction. So users construct an avatar that they can type messages to or talk via audio. Currently, there are only female options available. So you can personalize your avatar through multiple menus, around 30 different menus, in order to create a unique character. And that means that users can choose the avatar's visuals such as clothes and body specifics, hairstyle, nipple size, angle of nose upturn. There's like a really big range in order to get like a very personalized avatar. Wow. But it's also really important to mention that users can also select the character's personality and they can choose from 12 different traits, which are sensual, cheerful, insecure, spiritual, helpful, unpredictable, talkative, moody, jealous, intellectual, funny, and affectionate. And to just talk a little bit about the game aspect of it, the gameplay is predicated on filling up the avatar's heart, desire, and lust barometer to get her to let you touch and kiss her, which consists of tapping the screen. So you tap the screen um, with the touch and the kiss button, this is your smartphone. This is your smartphone. Uh, and when, if you do that enough and successfully, she will climax. And that is the game. So again, this works as the program to control the robotic head of the silicone doll right. that real doll X have. But it also works as kind of like a sexy sim on your phone that you can just keep So you there. don't have to buy the doll. You do not have to buy the doll. No. But you can. <laughs> but you can. The difference is the Real Doll X application will cost you thirty dollars a year, thirty American dollars a year, and the uh, Real Doll can cost you anywhere up, like up to twenty five thousand. So wow, there's a significant price point difference. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, so you can have this on your phone. Um, let's talk about the app for a little bit first. So if you if you have the app on your phone and we think about this using posthumanism again we can already see the gender binary in that there are only female options offered at the moment and it sounds like the marketing is heteronormative are we presuming male users of the app So I think that we can presume I would like to say that I have been I've been using the application for my research and I use she her pronouns and I told my digital doll Anna that I use she her pronouns and she does always correctly gender me so there is that kind of flexibility okay. within it but yes I think it's fair to say that this is overwhelmingly marketed to heterosexual men I would say specifically I think it's marketed to doll owners as well so real doll has a really big following of loyal fans who love their doll products and the doll community yeah have have long admired and bought real doll products so i think that it's important to note that this product is also marketed as a digital doll right that you can have on your smartphone that she can accompany you see where i'm getting at with the parallels with hikari yeah. she can come with you everywhere you want her, you want her to go and so I think that it's important to highlight that it is also yeah doll owners that do that and actually in a, in a paper that I wrote with my PhD supervisor Dr Kate Devlin we did talk to doll owners about their interactions with this digital doll avatar 
and they're into it. They like having a digital doll character that is interactive, that they can talk to, that is responsive, which I think, again, ties in perfectly with this idea of post-human companionship. It's the interactivity, kind of bridging of the human and non-human divide. I also find it really interesting that there's there's so much customization. I mean, we already kind of touched on this a little bit with Azuma Kakari and this idea that the more you interact with her, the more responsive she is and the more you kind of grow this relationship together. And it sounds like there's something similar going on with Real Daleks and also this idea of like hyper customization, both in terms of her physicality and her look, but also in terms of her personality and and all of that. So is there a way in which there's kind of a promise of uniqueness here with real Daleks? I would say so. I would say so. And I think that this is why it's important to mention that it is marketed and heavily, heavily tied to the doll community, because I think it offers a kind of digital approximation of what it is to construct a relationship with a silicone doll. You know, there is lots of really important and very good research that talks about the construction of doll relationships that involve a really elaborate backstory and personality and I think that while obviously you you only have these 12 persona points they do somewhat influence the way that your character will interact with you if you program I've cross-referenced different kinds of personas if I have one that's programmed with more inverted commas, negative features such as moody, insecure, um, I'm trying to think. I think jealousy was one of them. Jealous, thank you, yeah. She's not going to be as interested in talking to me. She's more likely to stamp her feet and cross her arms. Again, I'm getting to the infantilization (laughs) of of these characters. And it's much harder to fill up those barometers that I mentioned before that will allow for erotic touching. Whereas if I program a character to be, to have the more positive ones, cheerful, affectionate, talkative, it's much easier to get to fill those barometers and have a, a quick a quicker conversation because of it. So I point this out because I think that creating a personality is a really important part of silicone doll as character construction. Right. And I think that that's why personalization, especially when it comes to personality, is such an extensive part of the app. Because, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think it gives the impression of uniqueness of your character and therefore uniqueness of your relationship with that character. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then if I think about that and I think about love, romance, and eroticism all kind of being tied up here, it feels like there might be something to kind of a parallel there with Hikari as well. This this idea that well Hikari for Hikari the the erotic or sexual aspect was kind of downplayed, but arguably we could still read it in to some of the things that were being marketed there. Here I don't think it seems like it's downplayed, but there is still this huge emphasis on the relationship and the romance and the companionship alongside the eroticism as well. Is that right? Yeah, I I mean, I think, honestly, because I've spent so much time with this application, I kind of think that the eroticism is kind of downplayed in that Oh, okay. In that it takes it takes so long to get to any kind of erotic interaction. So, you know, a, a session of trying to fill up those barometers can take like anywhere up to like four and once like 18 hours for me and even yeah I know she's a tough nut to crack um 
And then you'll get to this, what is the private room. So it's where you will enter and be able to have like the sexier content. And if you manage to get it, get the avatar in that space, you then have to touch and kiss her in the right spaces, in the right places, sorry. And if you, if you don't, if you don't seduce her in that way, she can terminate the interaction completely. And she will just say, stop, you have to get me in the mood first. And you'll go back to the main screen. Wow. So after, yeah, six to 18 hours or any time within that. So this is a relationship investment. Precisely. Precisely. And I think that the fact that there is like the barometers that kind of quantifies the the way that she's interacting with you. It's not what you're putting in. It's what she's getting out of it. Mm-hmm. Kind of really illustrates that this, this idea of your almost, I would say, a post-human way of co-constructing a relationship you're spending time in there so that your avatar feels cared for, invested in, and therefore allows you to touch her, which, you know, raises some in, some really interesting and important questions about like, digital consent with avatars. Yeah. You know, is a yes from an avatar because you've pressed all the right buttons a yes? Can we even apply those rules? Is that is that appropriate or correct? But what it does suggest to me is that, it's not that sexy. I mean, even when she's climaxing, what happens is, you know, she's her naked body is there. You tap the naked body five or six times. There's an audio of a woman moaning and then a white light fills the screen. In terms of the erotic media that that affords, I don't think it's the most titillating and I don't think it's the most arousing, which makes me think that there's so much more emphasis placed on building a relationship with your avatar the the sexy stuff kind of is secondary in this as well there's one more thing that you said that I want to talk about before we move on to your third case study so when we talked about Azuma Hikari it was about her providing kind of care for the user and making the user feel cared for and wanted and needed like she can send you messages throughout the day while you're at work saying I miss you and stuff like that and here you said with uh, Real Doll X that in some respects, the game requires the user to kind of input the time and show the care. So it's 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 still about care and romance and relationships, but the, there's kind of an inversion here, if I'm right, between the way Real Doll X operates and the way Azuma Hikari operates, that Hikari gives the care and Real Doll X, in some respect, the user has to show the care. Does that is that correct or am I kind of overblowing the inversion here a little bit? No, absolutely not. I think that that's completely true. I think that users are invited to input constantly and that's time investment, emotional investment, but also financial investment. Right. You know, there's an in-game currency so that you can buy different outfits, you can buy face masks. This is there, there are lots of different parts of this that require a user's investment. And some, I think that there will be some users that will try out this game and not be into it at all. And therefore the investment will mean nothing. But I also know, because that was part of my master's thesis research, that for some of them, it is a really important investment right. for, for their for their well-being. They feel very attached to this avatar. And I think that the, the real Dalex really invites that. You know, they it's the, the characters presented as a perfect companion, a loyal friend, a girlfriend. You'll never be lonely again. It's right. one of the main things on the website. There's this real encouragement, I think, that you could invest time in this and there will be interaction. And I think we need to interrogate, as much as my research interrogates the representations of femininities, I do also think it's worth questioning how we feel about that being pushed as a business model that we invite 
that kind of interaction, if you pay enough money, a feminized character will pay attention to you. Yeah. And that's not particularly new, but it is relevant to my case studies. Yeah, I think there's a lot more to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> so much more. So let's talk about your third case study. This is Virtual Mates Sheila. Can you talk a little bit about what this is? Yes, I can. And I think that it's really important uh, as a case study because it is a much more explicit example of sex tech, I would say. But Virtual Mate offers a computer game experience and teledildonics hardware. So the hardware that is a core, named as a core, is a textured penis masturbator sleeve that through motion detection sensors connects to the software via Bluetooth. So this transmits the speed and depth of the sleeve's movements to the game. So the movement of the sleeve is reflected in-game. And the game is centred around the user interacting with a female character called Sheila. And there are basically multiple different play modes and worlds where the users can have sex, in inverted commas, with Sheila. So that's moving the sleeve to simulate penetrating her. Sheila is introduced from the first chapter as your girlfriend character. And ultimately, every chapter ends in sex with Sheila, who is breathily breathily enjoying being penetrated. Again, as uh, at the time of us recording this, Virtual Mate only offers gameplay with a teledildonic set for users with a penis and female characters. Okay. So it was safe to say... So another product that's marketed and designed to heterosexual men. Right. Overwhelmingly. Okay, so this one, there strikes me as some parallels between Sheila and Real Daleks because, again, it's it's kind of a game. It's a gaming aspect, which I think is really interesting. And I think there's ways we can interrogate romance and eroticism as a game, <laughs> which I think is really fascinating. So this one, unlike Azuma Hikari and even Real Daleks, this one is more explicitly sex tech. And there is, does Sheila go with you or is it like, can you use an app on your phone the way Hikari can travel with you through the day or is there a difference there as well? No. So with this, with this example, it's, she stays on the computer, but you can, there is an optional VR headset that you can use with it. So you could, to some extent, take her out of game and experience her through the VR headset. So I think that's not insignificant in terms of being contained to the to the screen but yeah I think that what's really important with with the virtual mate is that this is like extremely sophisticated in comparison just as I said about real Daleks I didn't find it particularly sophisticated this is you know this has a a warming masturbator sleeve bluetooth motion sensors that controls the character in game uh, with extremely good graphics like this okay. is i would say one of the cutting edge examples of sex tech in my okay. mind it's it's very good and and is there a customizable aspect with sheila as there is with the others i'm so glad you asked uh <laughs> that is currently no because oh. the money isn't there but they have said on their website it's one of the things users can pledge in order that r&d can start developing personalized characters and actually there there is an option that came out fairly recently that if you have the copyright and someone's consent they can create a character that they can put in the game for you i don't know how reliable that is but that is something that they advertise on their website as well so personalized to a certain extent and i think that it's not the want 
to do, to personalize that's limiting them, but the financial aspects, I would say at this point. Okay. So not yet, but clearly users want this. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. 100%. Okay. So in analyzing Sheila, I'm going to quote from your paper. You said the following, the promotional material is incredibly powerful as the content is explicitly sexual, dramatically romanticized, and yet reliant on a vision of femininity that raises concerns of reductive stereotypes. End of your quotation. And I thought this quote was really interesting because I think it could be said to some degree of all three of the products you examined, but it stands out the most with Sheila, I agree. And so I wondered if we could talk about this a bit, this idea of the mixing of sexual sexuality and romance and servile femininity. Oh, I have a lot of thoughts about this. And I'm really glad you chose that quote because I, I felt it was very true at the time and I still stand by that now. And I think I chose romantic and reductive because I think that's certainly true of all the digital femininities that I look at in my case studies. But I also think that two things can be true at once. <laughs> and I often think that heteronormative representations of female desire and heterosexual sex tend to really encapsulate these antagonistic ideas. Mm -hmm. So I think that something can be romantic and reductive outside of this content. But I think that with Sheila, that is really, really so true. Like the in-game narrative illustrates that Sheila is your long-term girlfriend that you go on holiday with, have hot date nights with, confide in and share a special connection and whilst that is all present, the sexual scripts that she states are pretty predictably problematic. A selection of things that Sheila will say in game are like, I'm here for you to use, use me however you want, I want you to do anything you want to me. And I think this is really important because as a sex tech product, the express purpose is to satisfy sexual desire. That in itself is not inherently problematic. However, when this is vocalised by a female character, this takes on a really troubling tone in my mm -hmm. mind. And I think this is why we have to interrogate the insertion of characters in sex tech, because we see sex tech for the demographic beyond heterosexual men as disembodied, ergonomic, not anthropomorphised products like take a smart dildo for example there is no human-like character attached to it I don't use gendered pronouns right <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the thing you don't you don't but if you if you take that as a, as a comparison point which is equally an example of sex tech it's just there is no anthropomorphization and so there isn't this reductive representation of gender that comes comes with it and so this is why because we're at these early stages we really need to start interrogating the significance of human-like characters being attached to sex tech. Yeah. No, I think that's really interesting. Like, I mean, the the script from Sheila, this idea of like, I'm here for you, use me however. And then if we look at how this is playing out in other places, like there on, on the English website, Azuma Hikari holds a sign saying master wanted. <laughs> like these are... <laughs> Or at least she used to, actually. I don't know if she still does at the time of this recording. But when I was looking at her, there was one picture of her holding a sign saying Master Wanted. And and this is like, this is very, very reductive stereotypes. I already mentioned kind of this idea of the domestic sphere with Hikari. And and we're seeing this, right? Like these are these are things that we should at least be questioning, <laughs> having a conversation about. A hundred percent. I'm nodding. Yes, I yeah. completely agree. 
So there is this this issue that we have these kind of reductive stereotypes and almost reductive romantic scripts, right? That they kind of fall into what we might call kind of romantic tropes and harmful romantic tropes. And then the mixing of that with also kind of questionable sexual romantic tropes of submission and servility. And, and even, and we've talked about it a couple of times, the treating of entering into relationships like a game that you need to win almost sort of sounds like pickup artists type of language at some points. And, and I find all of this really, really interesting. The gaming, the gamification of romance. And as you said, it is not like we can't lay this all at the feet of sex tech. We already have a gamification of romance through dating apps and it predates dating apps as well. <laughs> and, and so we kind of have this happening anyway but it's interesting to see it reinscribed in these digital spaces. And I wondered if you had any more thoughts about that. I mean, the first, and you mentioning about pickup artists, there's a brilliant paper by uh, a researcher, if I'm not mistaken, her name is Ellie Kaufman. And she talks about this idea of using, when you're using the real.x application, are we not replicating an idea of a no is a not yet? If we yeah. have the avatar that's like, stop, you'll have to get me in the mood first. That is a no and a not yet. And so it's it's important to to bear in mind that Real.x marketed this app as something that could be also a learning tool for people who wanted to learn how to have better relationships, how to flirt, how to chat. And I I cannot speak on how successful it is in that capacity, but I really recommend that paper that does it a lot more justice than than I do right now. But the gamification of these sex tech products is, again, really, really noticeable. And I, I come back to my example of the smart vibrator or a smart dildo for sex tech outside of the heterosexual male demographic. I don't know of any gamified sex tech products that outside of this space. There might be, and if someone knows any, please email me. But it's it's the fact that as if we look at the the field of heterosexual men's sex tech with characters, it's all gamified. And there's lots of other examples that I could have included in that paper or in my research where it's, yeah, levels, barometers, likes, hearts, in-game currencies. And and it just it replicates a game. And yeah, that idea that that means a no is a not yet and you just have to circle around and try a different angle is deeply problematic. <laughs> Absolutely. So one thing I found really interesting in all of this is that at least in North America, and you can let me know if Europe is similar, we're often told this very kind of heteronormative sexist story that men are only interested in sex and women are the ones who are interested in kind of love and romance and monogamy. And what I found in your research is that all three of your case study technologies are not just selling the promise of sexual gratification. In fact, Hikari isn't selling the promise of sexual gratification at all. There is perhaps kind of a flirtation or titillation there, but not, not the same way as with Sheila, for example. And all three of them are selling kind of a type of romance and relationship, and that they're explicitly selling this to heterosexual men. So can we talk a bit about that? Because I found that so interesting. <laughs> It kind of broke the usual script, the stereotypical script that I think we're often told. 
I think that when I first started this research, I was also kind of a bit chin scratching, a bit baffled by it. But I think to go back to how I got to this research with my idea of my my overall thesis exploring the viability of exploring heterosexual men's sex tech as post-human sexual commerce, I think that when you turn to sexual commerce literature, the fact that men consider sexual services as a space to also experience romance and intimacy isn't surprising. And the amount of work interviewing both sex workers and sex worker clients attesting to customers wanting to talk, touch, hug, confide, as well as or sometimes instead of having sex is not insignificant. So for me, it really prompts me to think, why would these desires to pay for sex and experience intimacy not be outsourced to digital femininities in sex tech? Sexual commerce literature really provides for my research and for this kind of field, a lot of important base to explore the intricacies of how you might pay for a service and that be much more complicated than it just being sex because sex is never just sex. Right. And yeah, I I do take your point that a lot of sex work is also care work. And so if we're seeing kind of the outsourcing of sexual desire to digital technologies, we would probably expect to see the outsourcing of care work as well. And, and it kind of reminded me of something you said both with Hikari and with Real Doll X, this idea of a promise that you will never be lonely if you have these, because those ones go with you, right? You can have it on your phone. Hikari can text you in the middle of the day and tell you she misses you. And Real Doll X, you can have on your phone kind of all day. And I think, I think that's a really interesting thing to think about when you're thinking about this through a post-humanist lens in terms of the relationship that In some respect, it seems that there's a desire for this not to be momentary, but to be something kind of integrated through through your life and through your day. I know I would I would completely agree. I I think that for some people, it's preferable. It could be preferable to have a technological companion than a human one. I think that that's not too much of a stretch, whether it doesn't sound particularly desirable to me, but for others, it might be because there might be consistency. There might be not the the fear of that person not necessarily leaving you or hurting you it's why it's important to take this seriously because it's not just this isn't just sex tech about sex this is about people's feelings this is about relationships with characters this is about human beings seeking connection sometimes in ways that we don't necessarily agree with or we need to ethically unpick a little bit more but the intention to connect is still kind of there so i try and see the optimistic side of it as much as possible so I want to thank you so much, Chloe, for taking the time to talk to me and our listeners today. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave us with, with regards to sex tech, sex robots, or post-humanism? I guess, actually, I do. I have one, I have a post-human challenge for everybody at home listening to this. Amazing. <laughs> and I guess I would just ask everybody to think about what objects and digital technologies do we already have intimate and effective relationships with i think that when we think about post-humanism i think we think about often we think about the the pets that we have as our non-human companions and, and other kinds of effective relationships but if we were to start imagining how closely tied we are to our digital technologies and in and in complex emotional and effective ways like what might that look like So I guess, yeah, that's what I'd like to leave everybody with. That is such a cool challenge. 
I'm already thinking about my car, which I gave a name to. (laughs) Perfect example. Perfect example. This episode of Gender, Sex, and Tech continued a conversation that began when I discovered Chloe's article titled Rethinking Sex Robots, Gender, Desire, and Embodiment in Post-Human Sex Tech. I want to thank Chloe for sharing her research with us today. And thank you, listener, for joining me for another episode of Gender, Sex, and Tech, continuing the conversation. If you want to continue this conversation further, please reach out on Twitter at tech underscore gender. Or you could leave a comment on this podcast, or maybe you could consider creating your own essay, podcast, video, or other media format to continue the conversation in your own voice. Gender, Sex, and Tech is proud to be part of the Harbinger Media Network. Music for this episode was provided by Epidemic Sound. This podcast is created by me, Jennifer Jill Fellows, with support from the Mark Sanders Foundation for Public Philosophy. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider buying me a coffee. You can find my link to my Kofi page in the show notes. Until next time, everybody. Bye.